Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Carson Vaughan, author of Zoo Nebraska. Our conversation today is being recorded via Skype. Carson Vaughan is a freelance journalist from central Nebraska with a focus on the Great Plains. He's also weirdly obsessed with cowboy poetry. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker Online, the Atlantic, the Guardian, the Paris Review Daily, and more. Most recently, he was awarded the 2018 John M. Collier Award for Forest History Journalism from the Forest History Society for his Weather Channel feature, Uprooting FDR's Great Wall of Trees. He was also a recipient of a 2018 Individual Artist Fellowship from the Nebraska Arts Council. His first book of literary nonfiction, Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, was published by Little A in April 2019. Our conversation today is being recorded by Skype. Carson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Stuart. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what is your craft of writing and and how do you go about the business of it? You know, I don't know if the path that I took was necessarily the right one or even a good one. Um, But what I did was, I mean, I studied journalism and English at Nebraska for undergrad. And then um, I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do with that. And the economy wasn't great at the time. So I ended up applying to MFA programs um, for creative nonfiction writing. And so that kind of allowed me to like pursue both my creative interests, but also keep reporting. Like I really love reporting and I like writing nonfiction. I just don't like doing it in like the daily news format. So that's kind of like what I cobbled together and studied um, in grad school. And then as soon as I finished that, that's when I like, instead of applying to magazines or newspapers or anything, I moved back to Nebraska where my wife was already working at an ad agency. And I just started freelancing from day one. And it was like those first I mean, it's always a slog, Stuart, but like those first couple of years were slow and I was making horrible money. And, you know, you're talking about the pitches, like all I knew how to do was send out, you know, one email after the next. And I just, you know, because I had spent some time in the literary world, I knew kind of how literary journals worked. And I knew that a big part of that was merit, sure, but another part of it was just a, like a sheer numbers game. You know, you send out a short story to like 100 journals, the chances that one editor at one place might find it interesting. And so the, the numbers weren't good, but if you did it enough, I assumed you might find some success somewhere. And so that was sort of the approach I took with like, you know, editorial and like the journalism world. So I just started pitching like every magazine that I knew that might be interested in any stories that I had. And the percentage of acceptances to rejections was horrible. Like maybe out of every 10 or 15 pitches, I would get one or two, not even yeses, but like maybes or tell me more. I started getting more and more assignments. It snowballed over the years, but that's kind of how it started. I just like was pitching the hell out of (laughs) the editorial world, I guess. You know, I should confess up front that I think, I know some journalists who are really good at the pitching process specifically, you know, and I think their success rate is probably much higher. I don't consider myself great at it. And part of that is because as a freelancer, you know, you're not on salary. And a lot of the times to pitch a good long form nonfiction piece, the pitches that you need to put together are a thousand words themselves. And you don't get paid for that amount of time. And you can't put together a pitch if you haven't already interviewed one or two sources. And so like, it's a ton of time you have to put in up front with no guarantee that anybody's going to want it. And so figuring out the right balance of like, okay, how much work do I put into this pitch before I send it off? That's like a, that's a tricky business on its own. I do think I've gotten a little better at it over the years. And more importantly, I think I've gotten better at um, sort of valuing my time and talents better than I used to. You know, like I used to get steamrolled by editors all the time and I never pushed back and I just like was happy that somebody at Slate or whatever, you know, like wanted a story. I was happy to have the byline. But then at a certain point, you look at your own finances and the numbers and you're like, well, I clearly lost money on that venture, you know, and so you can only do that for so long before you realize, oh, I can't like subsist here much longer unless I get a little more upfront with these editors and start valuing my time more appropriately. 
I wonder if you have become more attuned to what it is the market wants, or at least what the publishing industry thinks the market wants, and therefore those are the stories. And I, I'm wondering if there's a tension there between what you want to write about and what they're telling you the market wants. So you might want to write about cowboy poetry, and they want stories about um, social media and the Barbie doll. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a perfect example because, <laughs> as you might imagine, <laughs> pitching this many cowboy poetry stories has not been easy. You do sort of figure out workarounds. Like one of the I guess, sort of like inherent tensions in doing what I do is that I wanted to freelance so that I could pursue the stories that I thought were interesting, you know, to follow my passions. That's why I didn't want to work for like a newspaper or magazine right away because I didn't want an editor telling me what I had to cover. That being said, you still are pitching to editors and they have to determine what an audience is going to be interested in. So for example, with the cowboy poetry stuff, once I like started doing a lot of deep reporting in that world, I realized I'm not going to be able to sell another story unless I somehow make this more topical to a broader audience. So, you know, the first time I went was for the New Yorker and that was more of like a straightforward, what is cowboy poetry and what is this national gathering about? But after that to pitch, you know, further stories, I had to say, okay, well, um, the first story I went was in 2016. In 2017, I pitched to uh, Vice magazine, and to get them to accept the pitch, I wrapped it into like a, okay, well, this is the first gathering there's been in Elko, Nevada since Trump took office. Let's see like what role politics plays at the national gathering. The next year, I pitched a story to End These Times, uh, like a social justice magazine here in Chicago, and I said, I want to go and uh, report on all these cowboy poets and see how they feel about climate change. You know, they all claim to love the land and write these very sentimental, romantic poems about this landscape in the West, but do they believe in the science of climate change? Are they worried about this? So it allowed me to keep the focus on what I was interested in, but do it from, you know, different angles. I just maybe want to close the loop on what we were just discussing before. What are the changes that you have noticed in... Um how you conduct your business of being um, a journalistic, literary journalistic, creative nonfiction writer, and what is now the kind of norms of the industry, the yeah. market, for, for yeah. consuming this kind of work? I wish there was sort of like a more positive or optimistic answer about it, but it's been, even in the, you know, I think I've been freelancing full-time for five or six years now, and you know, some of the mainstays have closed, even just recently, like Pacific Standard was a magazine that I had just written like one long form piece for, and I had done a few other small things for them. But I was really looking forward to like a future of continuing to have them sort of on the roster as an outlet. They just closed. And that was, I mean, that, that was a huge bummer to me. And a lot of other like journalists that I really admired were also working for the magazine. It, it came as a shock to a lot of people, I think. So that was a bummer. And there are many, many other examples of other publications going by the wayside. So that's like sort of a depressing outlook on it. In terms of just like my own personal writing, I guess one of the, I don't know if it's like a change, but it just becomes more obvious to me more and more all the time is that I, I'm a much better writer when I'm writing about things that I care about. And so like when it goes back to the pitching process, you know, like there are obviously times when it's fairly obvious, like what an editor is going to want. When all the flooding was happening in Nebraska, you knew like if national magazines were going to be interested in anything from our state, they were going to be looking at those floods. And I didn't pitch any of those stories and maybe I should have. Um, but I just knew that like by that point, I had been outside of Nebraska for like a year. I didn't feel like I had immediate access to my sources there and I didn't want to dive into something that I didn't know about, you know, that I didn't feel intimately familiar with yet. And so instead, I pitched the stories that I am directly involved with and feel like I have a fuller grasp on. And I think when I do get those stories finally greenlit, I do a better job of both writing and reporting them. So, you know, I mean, I'm evolving and progressing and getting better at it all the time, I think. But it's always freelancing is a roller coaster and the industry is insane right now. So... <laughs> Just imagine 
So tell me about your childhood. Sure. Um, well, I was born and raised in a town called Broken Bow, which is like 3,500 people, a ranching, farming town in central Nebraska. Uh, my dad was the local optometrist the whole time I was growing up there. And my mom uh, was a mom for many years. And she went back and got her speech pathology degree and started um, doing that at the public schools, not in Broken Bow specifically, but at the smaller rural schools around Broken Bow, so in Arcadia and a couple other places. I think a lot of people sort of have this feeling about their childhoods. At the time, I thought like Broken Bow was pretty small and I wasn't interested in it and it seemed boring and I was, you know, anxious to get out. But, you know, here I am at 31 and all my writing is <laughs> not necessarily related to Broken Bow specifically, but to like rural culture in Nebraska and I always think it's really interesting. I ask my friends about this a lot. I think there are like, this is obviously a broad generalization, but it seems to me like people fall into sort of two camps and like the one camp, whether they want to or not, have this like deep, weird connection, fascination with where they come from. And other people are just like, no, nah, I don't feel that at all. So my two older brothers grew up the same way I did in small town, Nebraska. They don't feel any like, instinctual like defense of place or need to be home or necessarily care that much about Nebraska whereas I even though I was anxious to leave Nebraska still think about it all the time and you know get angry when I see national media or even people within Nebraska uh, criticizing it needlessly it's just so I don't know where that impulse in my life necessarily comes from but um, it's there for sure what was your upbringing like? Yeah. Uh, are, are there any elements that sort of you think back to and think, oh, yeah, that captured a feeling of how my childhood and upbringing was, or this moment really epitomized what it felt like to be me? Yeah. I think sort of two things contribute to the way I feel about Nebraska now that came from childhood. One is that Broken Bow, I mean, the town itself is what it is, but it's right on the edge of the Nebraska Sandhills. And you know, I was involved in Boy Scouts and I lived outside of town um, for most of high school. And so like I was surrounded by the landscape and the countryside of the Nebraska Sandhills, which are a beautiful, mysterious, lonely place that I love and think about all the time. And I think having had the opportunity and, you know, to spend so much time in the outdoors like that really crept into my bones at a certain point. Um, on the other hand, it can be really easy to like sort of slip into the insular environment of a small community like that. And my parents, God bless them, did a very good job of like, you know, getting us out and taking us on vacations and getting us to see other parts of the country and cities and small towns. And so like, I really credit them with helping me be like pretty well-rounded about, you know, both respecting where you come from and also understanding that like there are other ideas out there and it's okay to be open to those too. <laughs> This may be jumping too far ahead, but am I right in remembering something I feel like I stumbled across on one of your websites mm -hmm. that you fell in love with your wife in New York City? Sort of, yeah. Ooh, that must have been a deep dive. <laughs> um, we had my wife is from a town called Plainview, um, which is like in northeast Nebraska. We had met because we are both in the journalism college in Lincoln, um, but sort of the first like full summer we spent together we were both interning in new york city and so we spent a lot of time together there and so yeah that was like definitely where our relationship blossomed i think for a while i mentioned that only because i f i feel like it's important to juxtapose as it were the carson vaughn who if i can put you in that <laughs> describe <laughs> it that way, the carson vaughn the carson vaughn that um that you're describing that is from small town in the heart of the Midwest, um, just on the periphery of the sand hills, you know, one of the world's greatest ecological systems. Right. And yet you, your parents exposed you to something broader. I'm thinking about the degree to which a curiosity about life showed up in your earlier life. And then how you sated that curiosity as you were able as a, you know, younger man to actually go into the world. I was raised with that curiosity. Like, that, again, that goes back to my parents. Like, they were very good about exposing us to things and, like, triggering us to ask questions about our environment and what was outside of our environment, doing all that. Um, but then in terms of, like, sating that curiosity as a younger person, that's when it goes back to writing for me is that, like, writing has always been about 
my own curiosity, whether that showed up in, you know, my fiction as a like, middle school, high schooler, or in my journalism later on. And today I, you know, that's, that is the whole purpose, you know, like I get curious about cowboy poetry and I find somebody to pay me to go write about cowboy poetry. Like my, my career revolves around my curiosity at this point. So that, yeah, that sates it pretty well. How did writing show up for you um, sort of before going to college? Enough for you to think to yourself, I'm going to college to do writing. I mean, writing was something that I always liked to do. I mean, I have like pretty vivid memories of like as early as like first and second grade during like those elementary like free write periods, which were probably just like the teacher wanted us to like be quiet for a little while. But I remember loving those and just like the freedom you felt of being able to take your character across the page wherever you wanted them to go was like exciting for me. Um, but I think when I got like real sort of affirmation or confirmation that I was okay at it was, uh, in high school, I joined like the, uh, you know, the high school newspaper and was editor in chief of that for a little while. And I also, with a good friend of mine founded like a <laughs> high school satirical newspaper. Um, and so those two things combined, I ended up like winning some state awards from Broken Bow for journalism and stuff. And I just thought, well, I'm really bad at basketball and I have asthma, so I'm not great at cross country, but I seem to have won this medal for writing. So maybe that's something I'm good at, you know, and I knew I liked doing it. And so that seemed like a fairly obvious choice by the time it was, um, you know, by the time I graduated and was looking at college. want to talk about Zoo Nebraska and the first thing I want to ask you is the title Zoo Nebraska the fight for the biggest little zoo in America Zoo Nebraska the dismantling of an American dream I'm seeing two titles when I it's Google. uh yeah that's actually very annoying Amazon screwed that up they made like a mock-up page I think the first time and because Google had already like sort of registered it it won't go away I'm hoping at some point that disappears. But the real subtitle is definitely The Dismantling of an American Dream. The other one you see was uh, another idea we were tossing around for sure for a little while, but I think we landed on the right one. Well, I think that that's why I wanted to raise that point, because for me, the feeling that I have reading the story is deeply emotionally moving, and it captures so much about the idea of America, the idea of small towns, the idea of yeah. communities. Um, the values we place around each other and around our relationship with animals and the land. And so that title, the subtitle, The Dismantling of an American Dream, feels so accurate. Yeah, good, good. The, the, that whole process of like coming up with 10 words to summarize a book you've spent 10 years of your life on, <laughs> ultimately, like, I mean, I would be lying if I said, yeah, oh yeah, Zoo Nebraska felt right from the beginning or The Dismantling of an American Dream just clicked, like I just knew it. That both of those would be a lie. It's really hard to like look at anything that's supposed to summarize all this work and all these complex ideas that are supposed to be so nuanced and then just slap it on there, you know. But I do think, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think the dismantling of an American dream does come pretty close to what some of the bigger, deeper themes of this book were. I heard you speak at Omaha Lit Fest right. uh, the fall of last year, 2019. And you spoke really eloquently about the origins of the book and the idea for it. How did this book emerge as a story that you wanted to write about? Well, I mean, like I said, so I studied journalism and English both in undergrad. And when I was in between the summer of my junior and senior year, it came that time that I needed to get serious about what my senior thesis was going to be. Um, and, you know, I had 
also founded a satirical newspaper in Lincoln called the Daily Ear Nebraskan, which was sort of like a spoof on the Daily Nebraskan. And that had like eaten up my entire college career. And so I just assumed for my senior thesis, I would write some like long essay or something about like the role of satire or sarcasm on a college campus that seemed like an obvious choice. But I was like dragging my feet on it a little bit. And that summer, um, you know, I had mentioned my wife earlier, we had started dating. We had, we were maybe, a, I don't know, a couple months or a year into dating. And she took me to meet her family for the first time out on the farm in Plainview. And Plainview is only about uh, 20 minutes from where Royal is. And Royal is the main setting of the book. And so her family was sort of familiarizing me with Northeast Nebraska, showing me around the different small towns in that area. And at the end of the day, we were driving back on Highway 2, and she and her mom both, you know, just kind of pointed out the window and said, oh, hey, that's where Ruben got shot. And I had no idea what she was talking about at all. I didn't know who Ruben was. Uh, I didn't know that we were, I mean, Royal is so small that I didn't even know that we were passing through a community <laughs> you know there was no like sign there was no stop signs or stoplights or anything like that there were just like the bones of these old cages and that's where Reuben got shot and so they explained you know a chimpanzee used to be a celebrity in this area and yada 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 and it just brought up so many questions for me and I got lucky that day because we actually pulled over so they could keep explaining the story to me and we noticed that there was a sign posted by the state of Nebraska that was advertising the public auction of what was left of the zoo the very next weekend. Still looking for that senior thesis, I thought, well, maybe I'll come back next weekend and sniff around a little bit and see if there's a story here. And um, when I did that, I just immediately, like those journalistic instincts just like made the hair on my neck stand up. You know, like I wasn't sure exactly what the story was, but people at this public auction were very tight-lipped, a little defensive about talking about what even existed there. None of them wanted to talk about the shooting of three chimpanzees. You know, I met a guy named Jim Haskin at that auction, and he was the dad of the guy who started the zoo. And he was telling me these very emotional, heartfelt stories about feeding Reuben the chimpanzee peppermint leaves in the morning. And so just all of this stuff came in the first like 12 hours of reporting in Royal. And it was enough to make me think, okay, I'm going to spend some serious time here and maybe knock out my senior thesis. And the senior thesis ultimately followed me through undergrad and grad school. And finally, you know, multiple years after that, here the book is. So. The book, um, as I've read it in paperback, there are no photos. Yeah. I mean, this is the world of the internet, so you can Google all sorts of things. But I am wondering if uh, you had that discussion with yourself about, yeah. do I include photographs here? Yeah, it's funny. You're maybe the 10th or 11th person who's asked me about photos for the book. And I think it's a good question. I'm surprised I haven't gotten it more than that, honestly. Um, it, it's interesting. The original, my book proposal, the one that sold, that my agent sold for me, um, includes like, I think, 10 or 12 photos. That was supposed to be part of the original thing. But when it came time to putting the book together, my editors and I'm assuming the marketing people at Little A too, I think they're reasoning for not wanting to include photos is that they felt like it already read like a novel and they wanted to keep that vibe going and by putting in like you know true to life real photography they thought that that might take away from that vibe in some way whether that panned out or not i don't know um some of the excerpts that have come out since then did include at least a photo of dick haskin and some animals which is nice and you know if they ever put the book out again i think I would probably vote to include at least a few. I don't know. I, I can go either way on it, I guess, at this point. As an interested reader of the book without any other qualification, the discussion I had in my head was, oh, it would be nice to see some photos of the things you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and then I worked out that that actually is not the right idea because your writing is so evocative that I think photos get in the way of, of what you have so artfully written about. You always run the risk, right, of if you did spend all this time describing a certain scene and then you have a photo paired up next to it, <laughs> you run the risk of somebody saying, oh, that's not really what I would have described it this way or that doesn't add up or that's contrary. You know, like it leaves a lot of room for um, sort of an internal battle on what, what looks accurate in your imagination versus, you know, on the page. And so 
I, I actually think I would go a step further and say instead of thinking about it from a deficit, as it were, point of view, um, I see it more as a positive that, that your writing is so lyrical and beautiful that in some ways I think it's preferable. Oh, than, thank you. I mean, that's, I like to hear that, yeah. I'd love it if you would read something from the book yeah. if you feel like doing that. And that could be now, it could be whenever you feel like doing it. Yeah, sure. This is a, an excerpt that I typically read during like my book events. And it comes from the middle of the Chimp Escape in Royal Nebraska. So this was on September 10th, 2005. Um, for those who haven't read it, hopefully they will. But um, on that day, a volunteer forgot to lock the chimpanzee cage and all four of them calmly stepped out and ended up running around town. So this is an excerpt from the chapter that covers that whole thing. Anna Shaben and Candace Mackey, both from Orchard, had just left the jewelry party at the home of their friend Stephanie Hughes when Anna noticed the chimp clinging to the zoo's western fence line. She wondered aloud if this was normal, though she didn't slow down. They'd never considered that the animals might escape. For most locals, the zoo had lost its exoticism years ago. So familiar now, it seemed almost normal. The way a western painter might include the barbed wire fence, as if it had always been there. Every bit as natural as the blue grass and the boiling thunderheads above. A howling wolf no longer raised eyebrows. A hooting chimpanzee was as common as the noon whistle. The mother of three kids, Anna had been to the zoo hundreds of times, and so they kept driving. Certain a keeper was close behind, that it was just another day at Zoo Nebraska. When they turned west onto the highway where the power lines split and the road opened wide, they found another chimp barreling towards Thirsty's Bar, a dark flash beneath a powder blue sky. There was nothing left to interpret. Anna flipped a U-turn, certain now something had gone awry. She watched in the rearview mirror as the chimp pilfered a plastic chair from the parking lot and let it grind on the asphalt behind him, lazy and loose, like the neighbor's boy, tired of shoveling snow. Above him, the sky, sprawling and sharp and completely unobstructed, the sun spreading itself across the pavement like soft butter, no longer sliced and divvied by the wire crosshatch of a cage or the wooden slats of a shipping crate or the water-stained skylight of the Carson Center. Anna sped back to the zoo. They rushed through the gates and rapped on the office door. They heard the locks slide back. The door cracked ajar. Hurry up, Fayette said. Get in. Inside the admissions building, they joined Fayette and her father and roughly a dozen puzzled customers whom Fayette had ushered inside at Junior's command just moments before. She'd steered them toward the back and away from the windows, and then she'd made three phone calls to 911, to the vet, and to Marvin Young, the zoo board president. And then she lied. She told everyone this had happened before several times, that it was no big deal and would blow over soon, that the director had, would have them corralled and back in the cage in no time flat. I didn't want anyone to panic, she later wrote in a voluntary statement for the state patrol. I talked and calmed the visitors down, and everyone was in good spirits. That was until a furry black hand punched through the ticket window, showering a fistful of glass on the counter. The front door began to shake, the gold handle twisting back and forth. They could hear the chimps, were there two, three, four, hooting and slapping, pounding the tin with fists like rubber mallets. Tufts of hair darted back and forth, visible just above the window pane. The air conditioner began to click and rattle, the chimps' heavy blows ringing inside the metal cage, the whole unit threatening to push through the wall. The families inside gathered tight, parents hugging children to their sides. Anna grabbed Candace and hid in the bathroom. She locked the door. Like Diana, she knew the chimps' strength, knew they, quote, could rip your arms off. If they make it inside and everyone bolts, Anna thought, hopefully they'll chase the people who run. Then came the pounding in the back. And how could they tell, really, if it was man or beast, if that anxious butterfly beating was an excited chimpanzee or a desperate visitor, though Fayette would later insist they showed no signs of aggression. For a minute, the building calmed, all still outside the eastern windows, all still out front. And then the racket returned, a pounding on the back door, though it seemed somehow steadier this time. Fayette hesitated, but the knocks kept coming, and when she finally cracked the door, a shaken Diana pushed her way inside. She offloaded her shotgun on a visitor near the door, a man who looked like he pulled a trigger before. If they come around the windows, show them that gun, she said. I don't know what else will stop them. They can go through glass in a heartbeat. 
Just moments later, she found Jimmy Joe standing outside the front door, more electric now than he seemed before, as if in any second he might swing those long, brawny arms behind his head and throw them forward through the glass. She stepped behind the door where he could see her and said as loudly and calmly as she could muster, No, Jimmy. No, Jimmy. And like that, he scampered away. Diana found the tranquilizer gun and the drugs inside the cabinet, and with fingers shaking, nerves sparking like a blown transformer, she began to hastily load the darts and screw in the CO2 cartridge. She tried to, anyhow, but she skipped a step, or she reversed the order, or perhaps she never knew how to handle the gun to begin with. Two recent USDA inspection reports had specifically warned that, quote, currently there is no means at Zoo Nebraska to restrain or capture the animals in the event of an emergency. For example, none of the employees knows how to operate the tranquilizer gun. Whatever the case, Diana says, I really think I kind of lost it at that point. Outside, Junior had been circling the building, waiting for Diana to load the darts, trying his best to distract the chimps. When she finally delivered the gun out the back door, Junior sped off but returned just seconds later. The gun wasn't firing, he said. She returned to the office and tried again this time with guest Dana Ulmer standing over her shoulder, the air thick and stale, the walls closing in. The CO2 cartridge was empty, he told her. She loaded another and passed it back to Junior, still waiting outside. The shrieking seemed farther away now, and for a moment the building settled. The only noise, the flute of wind through the shattered window. She could feel her heart beating against her chest, like a bass drum beneath her ribs, sure it was soon to punch through. Well, that was perfect. Thank you. It was beautiful, but also there's a sadness. There's this sort of irresistible melancholy that runs through the story. Was it hard for you to write this story and to capture something that had inevitably, <laughs> there's no Hollywood ending to this? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is not a Hollywood ending. And I mean, to be totally frank, that's what um, prevented a lot of publishers early on from, I think, wanting to touch this book is they, you know, I heard so much positive feedback. And then at the end, they would say, but the ending, it's just not very happy. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, you're right. It's also a true story. You know, it also struck me as, you know, I don't feel like I'm an especially uh, <laughs> depressive or depressing person. But the idea of somebody having a big dream, shooting for it and missing struck me as like an incredibly human, very realistic, normal thing to happen. Much more realistic than the alternative, which is small town boy aims really high and achieves his dream. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's a fun story, but that's not that realistic. And, and so it never struck me as especially strange to want to pursue a story in which the outcome wasn't what, you know, the protagonist had intended. So yeah, I mean, it is a little bit sad and a little bit melancholy, but at the same time, I always say, and I said this during my book tour and stuff, you know, for all his faults, I give a lot of credit to Dick Haskin for being, you know, sort of your typical small town farm boy who had an idea as big as wanting to work with great apes in the wild. You know, the fact that he got as far as he did, that he even returned home, whether it was a good idea or not, but the fact that he ended up with a chimpanzee, working with chimpanzees in his career. I mean, he aimed for it and nearly got there. It feels to me as if you you were the perfect choice to be the the storyteller. Yeah. The yeah. person that kind of gathered your arms around it and, and told this story. And I, I say that because um, you write about the characters in a way that is honest, respectful, but doesn't varnish or smooth out edges. So, for example, the Jensen's mm -hmm. are a family that are the pariahs of a small town. And if this was a black and white Hollywood scripted version of this, it, it would just be cut and dry about who these people are. But throughout the book, every character is written with a deep sense of what it is to be human. And that really comes through. And I feel as if um, that is something that you seemed equipped to do. How intentional were you about that? And also, how did you manage to get these real human beings to give you the raw ingredients to be able to capture them? Yeah, I think there are like sort of several different elements to answering that question. One of them was just I don't, 
you know, I, I feel like I am a creative writer. I also feel like I'm a journalist. And first and foremost, in my mind, when writing this book was, you know, like objectivity and fairness. And so I never felt my role in the beginning was to necessarily like place blame on anyone or to judge anyone. I just simply wanted to know how did this zoo end up in a town this small? How did these chimpanzees get loose? Honestly, the whole thing I think was really sparked by um, the idea of, I think I had read in one of the voluntary um, testimonies that were you know, provided during the chimp escape, somebody had talked about um, seeing one of the chimpanzees swinging fairly calmly just on a tire swing right off the highway. And I thought, okay, what does it take to write a book that ends up with that image? You know, I feel like I was writing to get there. And that to get there didn't require me to go around judging people, but it did require me to spend a ton of time with people to learn their motivations and why they would act the way they acted. And I think it's, pretty hard, not just as a reader, but especially as a reporter and a writer, to do a lot of judging once you know someone's entire story. I mean, you may be able to say like, okay, well, this is where they went wrong. But when you know where they started, every story seems a little more human than, you know, than the alternative. And so I think all those things kind of combined uh, to create a book that tells a story without having necessarily one defined protagonist or antagonist or hero or villain. I, I like to think that it shows a lot of real humans doing real human things, both, you know, flawed and not flawed. What has surprised you about the experience? Did you learn anything about yourself in, in this kind of decade long process of having the idea emerge from this serendipitous moment? to now having it published and the town still exists there are still right. people and uh, but your book touring with this artifact of of what happened what is the epilogue to this it needs to be said that the relationship the reason it took me 10 years to write this book was not only because it took just a ton of like work on the gown reporting and interviewing you know hundreds of people but the main character, the guy who started the zoo, his name's Dick Haskin, and he refused to talk to me or be interviewed for this book for the first eight years. And so, um, you know, waiting around for that, trying to write around those holes just took a really long time. But it also meant that when Dick finally did say yes, I felt an extreme amount of responsibility to get that story right. You know, he was so reticent to talk to me. And for good reason. I was a stranger wanting to tell the darkest chapter of his life, you know? And so it is a lot of responsibility to tell someone's story. And especially when the story isn't necessarily one that makes that subject look great. I was up a lot of nights worrying about how, you know, if my portrayal was fair and accurate, if it was factual, if I had talked to enough people to get the story right. And then also, you know, when this book comes out, is it going to ruin this man's life? Is he going to go into hiding? Is he, those are just all questions that I didn't necessarily think about before diving into a book like this. And, you know, it's been a stressful ride <laughs> with Dick Haskin from day one. And to this day, it remains one, you know? Um, so that just that sort of relationship between like writer and subject is such a like complex one and something I hadn't given that much thought to prior to writing a, a book length nonfiction work. You know, it's different when you're writing, you know, a thousand word story on someone. That's a different kind of storytelling that requires a different sort of relationship. But when you've asked so much of one person and put that into a 250 page book that's nationally marketed, you know, it just brings up a lot of questions and other elements. got spare parts from my last broken heart somehow more than what I had to start yeah I've got spare parts I tried to feel
I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about Local Color XC. Oh, yeah. So um, I think beginning in December uh, 15, you went on a, a, a year-long journey around the 48 contiguous states in a tiny house. And you spent uh, that year in uh, with, with your then uh, girlfriend, we got engaged the day we left. <laughs> uh-huh. So you traveled with your fiance for a year in a tiny house traveling in a 120 square feet mobile house and um, traveled the 48 contiguous states. So um, why? Uh, great question. Uh, we had both been back in Lincoln post uh, grad school for a couple years. And um, I think we just sort of took stock of our circumstances and we were you know, we were at that age where we weren't, you know, we didn't have any kids yet. We both had jobs that allowed us to work from basically anywhere. We knew Lincoln and we loved Lincoln, but it felt, I think, I think I wrote this analogy somewhere, but it felt sort of like an apartment that you'd had forever where no matter how you rearrange the furniture, it was still that same apartment. (laughs) You know, like we had just, all our friends had left Lincoln. We didn't have that much tie to it anymore. And we just thought, well, like if we were ever going to do something wild, like travel this way, now's probably the time to do it. Why wait until we're like, you know, you can say you're going to wait till you're retired, but who knows what your health is going to look like at that point. And so we just thought we're young, we're healthy, we have no kids tying us down, like let's go. And so we spent, we bought a travel trailer on Craigslist for $1,300 in Iowa and uh, spent a year and a half renovating it back in my dad's shop in Broken Bow, Nebraska. And uh, eventually we got on the road in 2015 and we spent roughly a week in all of the lower 48 states and a few Canadian provinces. And uh, we had a great time. I wrote a travel series for USA Today along the way and my wife kept working for an ad agency uh, back in Lincoln. And I mean, we love it. We think about it all the time. We were just talking the other day. I mean, <laughs> we don't have the room here in Chicago to like keep a trailer in a garage. But if we did, we would be getting it out on the weekends all the time. We miss we missed the life for sure. What is it about that that is so appealing? I mean, traveling that way, I mean, everybody who has traveled a lot always says this, but it, you know, I mean, travel is such a luxury, but it also like every day forces you out of your comfort zone in a little bit in a way that is ultimately so gratifying. Like when we look back on the year and think of the people we've met and the relationships we now have, it's just that that would never have happened had we not traveled and talked to strangers and campgrounds across America. You know, I mean, we just returned from a short little vacation in Puerto Rico. And before we left, I said, Oh yeah, you know what? I interviewed this, uh, ecology professor at Rhode Island who was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I bet he has some suggestions for us. I hit him up. He gave us all these wonderful suggestions for like, you know, these local places to eat in San Juan. And it was just like, what an interesting, fascinating friend to have, you know, in my pockets. It was great. I mean, I should say that um, we, like the tiny house movement is great. I have nothing against it, but we did not, uh, <laughs> I mean, our trip was purely about us traveling and the cheapest way we knew how to do that was to live in a <laughs> cheap old crappy trailer. Uh, you know, we renovated it until it looked great and we love it now and are very precious about it. But we didn't set out saying, oh, we're tiny house people now. You know, <laughs> we just thought, how can we live cheaply in state parks? Um, and so that's that's what we ended up with, you know. Felt like the easiest, cheapest way to be mobile for a year. What did you learn about yourselves? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we learned a ton about ourselves. But as you can imagine, living with anyone, let alone your fiance in a 120 square foot trailer for a year, um, brings up its own challenges for sure. So <laughs> we learned how to live with each other and, uh, you know, explore that level of our relationship for sure. Um, we also learned how to like get out of a pinch together though, too, you know, and, and how to like, I mean, I loved having Mel along with me. Part of the reason we wanted to travel was so I could write stories from different States. And I learned that like having Mel along with me during some of those interviews was great. You know, it's one thing to be like, a 30 year old white stranger walking up to somebody as a man asking them for details but when you have your lovely wife with you who's also very kind and bubbly like people open up in different ways so it was like interesting to see you know the different dynamics of being a reporter with your partner versus not with your partner 
I want to ask how you stumbled onto cowboy poetry. Well, I got on to the cowboy poetry stuff because, um, well, we were actually in the middle of our road trip, and I had noticed a news item from the Custer County Chief, which was my hometown newspaper, and they had written a story about how um, my second cousin, a guy named R.P. Smith, had been invited to perform at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in a town called Elko in northeastern Nevada. And, you know, my second cousin I had known growing up, and he was, um, you know, I called him my uncle at the time. He was, you know, quite a bit older than me. But he would, like, come to Broken Bow High School and do his cowboy poetry and do local events around town. And it was like, you know, I always liked RP as a, you know, as my cousin and as a relative and a friend. But I didn't understand why why he was doing this cowboy poetry, you know? It seemed like at the time I was like too cool for it, you know? I was a high school guy. I thought this like rhyming sticky thing is just it feels corny to me somehow. Um but you know, then I got older and um hopefully a little less judgmental and Mel and I were on the road and I saw that news article and I just thought that seems like maybe a cool story. Like I wonder if somebody would like be interested in me writing a story about my relationship with cowboy poetry growing up and then seeing what it's actually like and doing like some modern day reporting on it. And I convinced the New Yorker to send me out there um, to write that story. And I thought it would be like fun, but sort of like an in and out kind of thing. And I just like fell into that rabbit hole hardcore once I got there. Like not only did I find my cousin R.P. Smith has a large loyal following like hundreds of people in the room staking out the door waiting to get his autograph and shake his hand like that kind of following um not only did i get to see that which was really fun for me but i met just a ton of really interesting cool characters um at the national cowboy poetry gathering and now you know i've gone back every year since then i've gone to the texas cowboy poetry gathering i hope to go to some more i don't know there's some and you also you mentioned the environment earlier, which is you know another like passion and interest of mine. Those sort of overlap in weird ways because cowboy poetry is rural, which I have connections to coming from a rural area. But all these poets are talking about, of course, their occupation as ranchers, but also how much they love and admire and respect the environment that they're working in. And so just thematically, a lot of things I think sort of coalesced at this one event for me that has kept me engaged with it ever since i'm just i finished up another story for smithsonian magazine just two days ago on a guy named badger clark who was south dakota's first poet laureate but he's also like the patron saint of cowboy poetry um you know i'm not calling it my second book yet but i've been putting together enough information on it that i think at some point i'll get around to that having read some of your pieces and people can go to your website carsonvaughan.com and read a lot of what you've uh, published but looking at some of those, for example, uh, you mentioned Badger Clark, who you're uh, just writing about for the Smithsonian. I read a piece that you wrote called Fever Dreams, which is about John Neihart, what a character he was, um, you know, a, a five-foot boxing poet. Um, yeah. John Neihart is fascinating to me. And I have another John Neihart story in the works that I really want to get out somewhere. He also had a very strange interest in like parapsychology and telekinesis and stuff like that. So I'm I'm itching to write that one. We'll see. <laughs> I, I think you've touched on this all the way through, but it, it feels to me as if you can't extract from yourself um, the Great Plains. Uh, yeah. You, you seem to embody that, and you can't resist the lure of that. In your book, Zoo Nebraska, you have a quote from Marie Sandoz. Yeah. That quote is as follows. I should like to stress the idea that if you know and understand the story of your community, you will know and understand a great deal about the story of man anywhere. And it feels to me as if that is a really apt description of who you are and what drives you. Yeah, I mean, I really like to think so. I really loved it when I found that quote. I mean, Sandoz, I've always been a fan of Sandoz anyway, but finding that in one of her letters just struck me as so true about her work and what I've tried to do in my own career. You know, I don't, 
no matter what I'm writing about, I like to think that there is some universal theme to be found that everybody can connect to. I don't see the point in writing if you're only writing for like 12 people in a very like esoteric vein, you know. And so even though I do write about some like off kilter topics, I like to find that universal material within them. And so, you know, with Zoo Nebraska, that quote felt especially true because I thought, you know, I'm not writing this book for the 60 people that live in Royal, but I do hope that what these 60 people in Royal have gone through with this zoo and its unfolding, if I dig deep enough into that story, there will be themes that somebody in Manhattan or Australia or Hong Kong, just universal human themes can connect to. And one of the really gratifying things about seeing the book like come out into the world and reading reviews and stuff, a lot of people not from Nebraska at all did say to me like, oh yeah, you know, like, the Jensen family, for example, I, I know them from my town. You know, <laughs> I know who those people are. I have one of those. And so these characters um, did seem to strike that, you know, that, that chord with a lot of people. My guest today has been Carson Vaughan, freelance journalist and author of Zoo Nebraska. Uh, Carson, thank you so much for being on the show today. No, that was cool, man. Thank you very much for all the questions. This was really fun. It's good to see you again. <laughs> Maybe I think we're on the verge of a breakthrough here. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>